My talk is called In the Throne Room of God. A while ago, I uh, shared with you a talk based on my favorite verse about prayer. <clears throat> I thought about asking if you remember what it was, but I won't put you on the spot like that. <laughs> the ver Let's see if I can do this right. Okay, the verse I shared with you at that time was this one, which has meant so much to my heart. Trust in him at all times, though people pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And we talked about all these examples in the Bible of people pouring out their hearts and how God wants that kind of genuine heart communication with him. Uh, but as it turns out, you really can't ever ask me what's my favorite anything. You can't ask me my favorite verse. You can't ask me my favorite color. You can't ask me my favorite dessert, anything, because there isn't just one. <laughs> so many good ones. So today, I want to share with you another of my favorite verses about prayer, and that is this one in Hebrews. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This verse has meant so much to so many people over the centuries that we've been reading it. But the part of this verse that really captivates me, the part of this verse that grabs my attention and that I want us to sit and meditate on and wallow in today and try and wring out as much as we can from it is this phrase, the throne of grace. It blows my mind to think that somewhere there is a throne that I've never seen. The Bible mentions this throne many times. The Bible uses this imagery of God sitting on a throne many times. Jeremiah says, a oh, this, this one gives me goosebumps, a glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. The psalmist talks about, I lift up my eyes to you, I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Another psalm says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And another psalm says, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. There is a throne somewhere that's been there from the beginning. From before we can imagine, there's a throne that has ruled the universe, that some incredible being sits on that incredible glorious things come from there's a place that we can't even hardly imagine that exists and i really want us to think about what the bible tells us about that throne and what this invitation really means to come boldly to this throne of grace what is a throne here's a couple thrones um the red one is a British throne, and the other one is an Egyptian throne that's supposed to be from Tutankhamun. Uh, looks to me like the British wanted to be more comfortable than the Egyptians. I don't know, that looks more cushy to me. But these thrones um, mean something very significant. They're not just chairs. There are chairs everywhere in the UK. There, are chair, there were chairs everywhere in Egypt. But these thrones mean something significant. They symbolize power and authority. They symbolize someone who rules 
someone who's over, some, they symbolize sovereignty, a government. I promise you did not look like this on my computer. <laughs> government fit on my computer. I don't know what happens when it transfers. Um, they symbolize, it, it represents a territory, an area that this throne is over, that this throne takes care of, that this throne is responsible for, that this throne rules over. It, it even symbolizes um, uh, loyalty. One is loyal to that throne because one recognizes that that throne is, is what takes care of them. That throne is, is over them. The throne represents stability. We saw a, a throne move from one monarch to another this week, and we realized how important that is, how they have, they have had plans in place for years so that there would never be one minute that there wasn't the right person sitting on that throne. There wouldn't be a minute that the throne was unoccupied. It was that important. Represents royalty. Here's an interesting throne. <clears throat> this stone is called the Stone of Destiny. It was in ancient times, it was the throne that Scottish kings sat on when they were coronated. So when they became king and they were crowned king, they sat on this throne. It meant a lot to the Scots. When the 1200s, the King of England came to Scotland and took the, the Stone of Destiny, their coronation stone, and brought it to England and, and built another throne on top of it. And this throne became the throne where the English kings were coronated. So when they were coronated, they sat on top of the throne of Scotland where the Scottish kings were coronated as a symbol that they ruled over Scotland, that they had taken over Scotland, right? Interestingly enough, in the 1950s, three college students from Scotland decided they were going to take this back and they snuck into Westminster Abbey. Not an easy thing to do. And they took this very heavy stone, they, they stole it from Westminster Abbey out of this chair, and they took it back to Scotland. And then it came back to England, and now it's back in Scotland. But it meant so much to them because it symbolized, it symbolized their country, their ruler. The Bible, <laughs> says that there is a throne. It pictures God on a throne so we understand that he is the sovereign, that he is over all. And there are some people who have had visions of this throne room of God. So I want us to take a look at every description I could find of this throne room and see if you can get a mental picture of what the Bible is trying to help you picture when you picture your God in his throne room. I've, nev I've seen pictures that artists have tried to paint of what we're going to read today. I've never seen anything that I think even comes close. Um, <clears throat> so Isaiah, he had a vision of the throne, and he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So his throne was in the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the picture that Isaiah got was of a glorious high throne with angels around it that praise God and say, holy, 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 recognize who he is. 
Ezekiel also had a vision of this throne, and he described it this way. I then saw what looked like a throne made of sapphire. And sitting on the throne was a figure in the shape of a human. From the waist up, it was glowing like metal in a hot furnace. And from the waist down, it looked like the flames of fire. The figure was surrounded by a bright light as colorful as a rainbow that appears after a storm. I realized I was seeing the brightness of the Lord's glory. You know, it says in the Bible that uh, when the Israelites saw God come down on Sinai, it said that his glory looked like flames of fire to him. Sometimes God is described as a consuming fire. It's just a, a visual of like the, the sun, like incredible brightness. And that's what he saw on this throne, this glorious, holy beings, bright brightness um, on this sapphire throne. Um, later on, he again described it, and he said, Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, so there are more angels around this throne, something like a sapphire stone. There's that sapphire again. In appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. So that throne twice looked like a sapphire stone to him. And uh, in uh, Exodus, when Moses went up on the mountain with the 70 elders, they had a moment with God before Moses went by himself and got the Ten Commandments. Um, it says, and, um, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. There's that sapphire again, blue, precious stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So three times this throne is described as looking like sapphire, bright, glorious, um, angels singing holy, holy, holy. <clears throat> Daniel had a vision of God on his throne, and he described it this way. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His throne was, again, ablaze with flames, that glory look. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. So this throne room, so far, we've only seen like a couple seraphim or a couple cherubim representing that there's angels present. But here, when Daniel saw this throne, when the Ancient of Days took his seat, there were, he couldn't even number the, the angels and the beings that were around this throne. Imagine how large this throne room is. I'm going to keep going. Can you keep listening? <laughs> Revelation 4 gives an even more detailed description of this throne room, and it is magnificent. So as I read this, look for these things in what I'm reading. <clears throat> John said, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne, and there was a rainbow around the throne. We heard about a rainbow before. Like an emerald in appearance. So we have a sapphire throne with emerald rainbow. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne 
here's the glory, came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. What does that sound like? Sounds like Sinai when the presence of God, God tried to be present with humans, but his glory just looked like fire and his voice just sounded like thunder. Um, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center around the throne, four living creatures. I think it's a shame that they translate this creatures because that makes us picture monsters. But just beings, four living people that aren't humans. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones before the throne, their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, O Lord, our our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created this is 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 this picture of this throne room just getting bigger and bigger and bigger to you is it filling in more it's this glorious place with lots of people and lots of sounds of worship and and holiness um, but but he wasn't done there he went on in whoops Oh, I went backwards, sorry. In chapter 5, um, he, had, he had mentioned that there was a, uh, a lamp, seven lamps representing the Spirit of God in front of this throne. In chapter 5, he adds one more thing. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. What does that tell you? The lamb is divine. Nobody falls down and worships before an angel. The lamb is divine. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, and where have you heard this before? Numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. He saw what Daniel saw. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the ancient of days. Worthy is the lamb. There is the ancient of days sitting on a throne. There, is, there are uh, lights representing the spirit of God and there is a lamb that we know is representative of God the son of Jesus Christ. In this most glorious place filled with holy beings, pure, pure people who have never sinned, who have always honored God, who have always lived righteous, loving lives, have never had a selfish thought or a self-centered moment in their lives that fill this thousands and thousands and thousands of them filling this place. And this place is real. It's somewhere. Is where It's where God sits on his throne. But here's the thing. We have these visions and these descriptions, but we can't go there. 
we can't be there because we have a problem. A problem that started from the very beginning of our race, from the very father and mother of all humans that changed who we are, that changed our very natures so that we have something that separates us from God. We have something that keeps us from being able to be in his presence fully and physically like all the other beings are because God is holy. And once we became sinners, we were not holy anymore. When Moses told God, I would like to see your glory, would you show me your glory? God told him, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. We can't actually be in the presence of our life giver and stay alive. Isn't that weird? But it's true. On Mount Sinai, <laughs> when God came down, okay, God wanted to be present with his people. He came and talked to them personally, not through a prophet, not through Moses, not through a vision, but he came and he tried to talk to them. And, and afterwards, their response was, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. That's what it felt like. It doesn't feel like that to all those beings that are around the throne, in the throne room. They're not feeling that way. But because we have something that made us separated from God and unable to endure his holiness, we have a problem, a situation where we can't come into this throne room. We are separated from God. We're like Esther. Esther, who the minute she walked into the king's presence was under a death sentence. And her only hope was to receive mercy from the throne, right? Her only hope was that he would hand out the scepter. And I always wonder, how did that go down? Was it like Hollywood like might make it like a very dramatic moment where she took step after step after step, not knowing if he was going to reach out to her? And finally, he offered her life instead of death? Or was it the minute he saw her open the doors and the minute he saw her walk into his room, he, he stuck that out? because he didn't want Esther to die. I don't know. I can't wait to hear, ask her and hear that story. How did that go down in that throne room? But we, like Esther, are under a death sentence to come into the presence of God. But I will tell you what. We are in a situation where we cannot make a difference. We cannot fix it. But God has introduced himself through his scriptures, through his story, as the pursuer of the ages. God, from the very first moment that there was any separation between humanity and his divinity, his first response was, Adam, where are you? He came to us, and he has been coming to us ever since. He is not satisfied with this situation to be separated from his children. And so through human history, they, he came to a point where he said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. That was his whole purpose. Not so that they might go through some rituals and show me that they're worthy of me, 
No, that I may dwell with them. I am separated from them. I'm in my throne room. They can't come to my throne room. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. When Jesus came as a human being, he was named Emmanuel, God with us. He was God with us. And at the end of the story, I don't know if you've ever noticed, that God's happy ending, God's dream come true, is that finally the tabernacle of God is with men. The Bible story tells you that you have never been so pursued. You have never been so wanted as you are with God's heart. God wants you more than any human has ever wanted you. God has been pursuing you more than any human has ever pursued you. You are loved more from this throne than you have been loved by any person you've ever known. And so God built a little representation of his throne room here on earth so that we could come into his presence. This is the temple um, as it might have looked in Jerusalem. And the whole point was for it to be a little mini throne room of God that people could approach. Now, you couldn't just approach the throne room of God in your sinfulness and unholiness. The first step you had to take was through this altar, through this substitutionary sacrifice where you recognized, you acknowledged that you were a sinner separated from God, and you acknowledged that someone else took your sin and died in your place and washed you clean. So you came clean and washed and forgiven into the presence of God. The rest of it, wow, the rest of it was an incredible representation of what is in heaven, only on a very, very tiny scale compared to what really exists for real. Before the, t- the temple, when the uh, Jews were traveling, they, were, they had a tent version of the temple. It was a smaller, more simple version of the temple. One time um, when we lived in Washington, we did a whole VBS program about um, Moses and about the tabernacle. And I told the kids that I asked them if they'd ever been camping. Did they like to camp? I told them God's people went camping for 40 years and that God really wanted to be with his people. So he said, make me a tent too. I want to camp with my people too. So this was God's tent. And it told the same story. It had the same altar. It had the same representation of how he would come and in our place and die for our sins and offer forgiveness and cleansing so that we could go into his presence. When Jesus came, he let us know again. He reminded us what the whole point of the temple was, what the whole point of the tabernacle was. He said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He didn't say a place of sacrifice. He didn't say a place of ritual. He, all those things that happened there at the temple or that happened there in the tabernacle were just to make a way back into God's presence for us to know that we could talk to him, that we could have a relationship with him because he wasn't satisfied with being separated from us. And so the inside of that tabernacle simply had four pieces of furniture in it. In the holy place were the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the candlestick with seven 
lights on it. Have you heard that somewhere before as we described the throne room of God? And then behind this veil was the, um, the Ark of the Covenant that held the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And, and there was a veil between the altar, I might be moving too far over, I don't know, um, between the altar of incense and the actual um, uh, Ark of the Covenant, which was capped with what was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat had these angels on it, and there is where the glory of God dwelled, the Shekinah glory that was so bright, they had to have a veil to, to cover themselves in the very, that little representation of the presence of God. This, um, as I just described to you, this was the whole point of the whole tabernacle, was that this was the presence of God, and the whole tabernacle sto- told a story of how to get there, how to get back into the presence of God, back into relationship with God. And the way that the, the Ark of the Covenant was described is you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Okay, in the New Testament, it's called the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, it's the mercy seat. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony I will give you. That was the Ten Commandments. And there... Here's the whole point of the whole thing. There I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. The whole point was relationship. The whole point was I know you can't come to my throne room. I am dissatisfied with that situation. The whole point was I want to meet with you. I will do whatever it takes. I will jump through whatever hoops it takes for me, a holy God, to come back into a relationship with sinful, my sinful children where you don't die and where we meet and where we speak. That is God's heart. Every day he says to you, I want to meet with you. I want to speak with you from above the mercy seat. The place that God comes to you from is not a place of judgment. It's a place of mercy. It's a throne of grace. And so the, um, the altar of incense was where the priest went when he went into he went into the tabernacle to pray and he walked all the way through the holy place and he stood at the altar of incense he brought with him the fire from the alt the altar of sacrifice outside representing that he was coming in the righteousness of jesus of his substitute and there he was And even in Revelation, it describes this little golden altar as a place of prayer. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. This was the altar of incense. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. That was the altar of incense. That was the whole point. God wanted this to be a house of prayer. And here you go. Here is your picture of prayer. There's the priest representing us fallen human beings in the presence of God and look at what is surrounding him. On his right is the table of showbread. The table of showbread was made of wood and covered in gold. It had 12 loaves of bread on top of it. And it also had the pitcher and implements for the drink offering. You don't hear people talk about drink offerings very much, but Paul talks about I'm being poured out like a drink offering. That was one of their offerings was simply pouring out wine. There on that table was bread 
and wine. And Jesus said, this bread represents my body. This wine represents my blood that is shed for you. In a very special way, this table of showbread represented God the Son, Jesus Christ, his throne right there. On the other side of the priest was the seven-branch candlestick. In Revelation, it talked about the seven lamps representing the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit. This piece of furniture is awesome to me. We could do a whole talk just on this candlestick. It was one candlestick with six branches. It was made from pure gold, pure hammered gold. We don't know the size. We just know how much gold went into it. And they made this candlestick. And then it had a, a theme to it. It was made um, like an almond tree. It was made with leaves and buds and almonds, like a tree blossoming and producing fruit. And then at the top, the lamps were filled with oil. And the priest's job every day was to fill them with oil and make sure they never went out, that the oil was always in there. In Zechariah, we have a vision of a priest in the temple with this candlestick. And it says that the oil there represents not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When, when priests were um, anointed for for service, they were anointed with oil, representing filled with the Holy Spirit. They needed the Holy Spirit to do their job. So this candlestick represents the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Producing fruit, helping you grow, helping you shine your light, um, making you like gold. It was hammered gold. Trials of life that make you more like Jesus. You know, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He also said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. He never said, you are the bread of life. That only represented him. But we were supposed to be his representatives, right? Shining his light, reflecting his light. And that piece of furniture reflected the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. And then in front of the priest, was the Shekinah glory, the, the one member of the Godhead that we have never rubbed shoulders with, that we can't, haven't seen or been in the presence of. Jesus has walked among us. The Holy Spirit is poured out among us. God the Father, we're waiting for the moment we can be in his presence, but there they are. There's the three thrones, the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. And when a person, when a priest went in to pray, he walked right into the middle of them. He walked into his altar of incense and he was surrounded by the presence of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all that they wanted to pour into his life and all that they wanted to do to him, with him, for him, in him. It reminds me of this verse um, in the Psalms that says, you are my hiding place, you preserve me from trouble, you surround me with songs of deliverance. And this was the hiding place. This is where a person was surrounded by this loving embrace of the Godhead himself. And he wanted to picture this for us so that we would know that when we walk into prayer, we are walking into his throne room. 
we are surrounded by the presence of the Godhead. This is the picture God wanted us to have, this bright, brilliant, light, wonderful picture of praying in his presence. But I'll tell you what, we don't belong there. We don't belong there because we are sinners. And here, God has made it possible for us to come back into his presence and to belong in this throne room. Look at this prophecy of the Messiah in Zechariah. Then say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will who bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. This man branch that even the Jews recognize as this meaning the Messiah will sit on a throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. What this means is a priest is a human. One who sits on the throne is God. And this branch, this Messiah would be both. And because he was both, he would bring the council of peace between those two offices. And he would bring the throne of God and the human race back together because he was both. And look what Hebrews says. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest. You guys, he's come who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. The, tr the temple, the tabernacle was a picture of God's throne room. And now we have a representative there. And look what it says in Ephesians. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I am not yet in heavenly realms. I am still here on this earth. But Jesus is our representative in heaven. He's there at God's throne as a human being. Do you recognize? He gave this up. He became human forever. He, he, what he gave up to be our savior was more than dying on the cross, more than giving up his life. He sits as our representative, as priest, human priest, and divine member of the Godhead in heaven as our representative. He hasn't always been our representative. In the book of Job, we were represented by Satan, right? The adversary, the satan, the, the enemy, the, the liar, the murderer, that's who represented us in the councils of God at that time. Beca and he said he was roaming the earth, walking all over the earth. In the Bible, where you place your feet, where you walk, represents ownership. He was the representative of our earth. But now we have Jesus as our representative because he is human and he is God. And in him, we can come right to that throne, boldly in Christ. I'd like to read to you one description from the book Desire of Ages that I think says this, just describes this so well, I couldn't say it better myself. The Bible shows us God in his high and holy place. 
not in a state of inactivity, not in silence and solitude, but surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of holy beings, all waiting to do his will. They're all perfect through channels which we cannot discern. He is in active communication with every part of his dominion. But it is in this speck of a world, in the souls that he gave his only begotten son to save, that his interest and the interest of all heaven is centered. God is bending from his throne to hear the cry of the oppressed. To every sincere prayer, he answers, here am I. God is bending from this glorious throne that we just read about, where he's surrounded by people who love him and obey him all the time, but his interest is centered here on the people who hurt and who are broken and who have fallen and who are oppressed. And so, when you close your eyes to pray, when you come to church to worship, when you sing a song of praise, you are standing before this throne. The moment you breathe the name of Jesus, you are ushered into this place where you're surrounded by the presence of the Holy Trinity, where you rest in the shadow of the Almighty, and where you are face to face with grace. I invite you to find yourself often in this place. I invite you to lose yourself in the crowd of angels that surround this throne. This is where you're invited to pour out your heart. Jesus' invitation is come, come follow me. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come cast your cares upon me in this glorious place. Come pour out your heart, come meet with me and speak with me. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. I hope that you will never see prayer the same again.